Greetings everyone. Uh, it's been a little while and we are going to spend some time today to consider to look backward at the book of Ecclesiastes to try to give a conclusion to this book and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute but as is customary uh, I'll mention something that's in my office here just right quick for a moment and then we'll move on. Uh, this is an interesting one. It's one of the more recent additions uh, to the office. This is an old school cool-looking rotary telephone. Uh, I don't have a ton of info on it. Um, it is, you remember this from when you were a kid? You remember this? This was made in Ohio. It is the St. Line Ringer telephone. And I don't know what year, probably, you know, 1800. <laughs> I'm making that up, I don't know, but a long time ago. Uh, this phone, here's the story behind this phone. To my office, uh, actually reminds me of, of our church, reminds me of, of us. I went to a, a Christmas party, a Christmas party put on by Mr. Castile in our church. He invites a ton of folks that you probably know, many of you have been to it. Uh, he always has a white elephant gift, as long as some caroling and that kind of stuff. And um, the couple of times that I've been, uh, it's been a great time. I've always been ill-prepared to do a white elephant gift exchange, but one of the times that we're there, there was an extra gift, and so I got invited into it. And this telephone was in a box. Um, I have no idea. I think uh, maybe it came from the house that was there when they got the house, or you know, he got the house or something like that. But of all the things going around, you know how white elephant gifts exchange are, right? There's a couple things that are great, you go for it. And uh, usually, at least in that moment, what I thought was, I want something eclectic, something that reminds me of my childhood. I remember as a kid running. Remember when you had the phone numbers memorized? You didn't even know, need the first three numbers because everybody knew that. You just start with the the ones that indicate the, the hometown you're in, basically. And then you just got to spin the thing. I remember this kind of phone. And we just haven't seen one for so long. And so I saw this. It was an old box. I'm like, are you kidding me? Remember when you had a number with a lot of nines in it? You had to go all the way. You had to wait for it to get back. Oh, it just goes back and back and back. So anyway, grab this. Uh, fun. Reminds me of uh, Christmas. Reminds me of our church. And, Carols, and then also just from my childhood, just a, just a fun little prop. I mean, look at that thing. Excited, and it's a uh, cool phone. All right, so it's been a number of weeks, and uh, many people have asked, or I'm going to say many, you know, many sounds like there's a huge crowd. A couple of people asked, at least, are we going to finish the Ecclesiastes series? Uh, I spent the last time that we were in a video talking about what I believe to be the great theme, not necessarily the meaning of the book, not the the topic or the philosophy of the book, but just a theme, and we talked about joy. But to conclude this book, how do we go about this? Uh, the last number of weeks I've thought through this, a couple of them we were out of town and had some sickness and a couple other reasons. Um, and then i got to admit, sometimes even the question of are we going to finish this book, uh, I sort of delighted in the fact that the inability to finish, the idea that people would say, like, well, what's the point? What's the point? How do we conclude this? Where do we, where do we tie this up in a nice knot? I, I kind of inwardly delighted in the fact that maybe that would be left hanging for a good while. After all, it is a book about vanity. It is a book about the impossibility of search for, for meaning and a point. Uh, but nonetheless, we are here, and I'm going to try to offer a few uh, thoughts as we wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read the last two verses. It's a good place to start. How do we end this thing? Well, let's start at the end. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then I want to talk about humans and their search for meaning. This is how the book of Ecclesiastes ends at the end of chapter 12. The end of the matter. The end of the matter. All has been heard. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's interesting, the end of the matter. He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been, been heard. He's introducing what he believes to be that all that can be said. And this last couple of phrases is brought back to the narrator. Remember, remember, narrator. Remember if we started the book, we said there was a couple different voices, a narrator, a compiler, and then the words of the preacher themselves. This is a narrator summarizing all that has been said, all that has been learned, all the wisdom, the end of the matter. And it makes me think about how, as human beings, we love this kind of thing. We want conclusion. And it's really unbelievable, actually, the capacity that God has given us to discover the matter, the amount of facts, the amount of data, the amount of things that we've brought together. Um, a number of videos ago, I mentioned NASA and my love of space. And, uh, one of my favorite quotes that represents the human capacity to imagine, to believe, to gather data, to search out a matter, matter, and then at the same time, just the utter helplessness, the vanity that comes from what you call secular human searching. Uh, it actually came about as a result of a picture, an image, actually a, a string of 60 images taken in 1990. Near the end of Voyager 1, a spacecraft that was sent off to explore our universe, near the end of the lifespan of this craft and its usefulness, on Valentine's Day of 1990, it was instructed to take a series of 60 images. Uh, one of those images became stuck in, the, in the, the human mind, became part of our story. And you may have heard of it or may have seen it. It's called the pale blue dot. The pale blue dot picture taken millions and millions and millions of miles away. There is a sunbeam captured in this image, and then there is a little speck way off, just the tiniest little speck, and that, of course, is Earth. It's called the pale blue dot because it is just a dot, one tiny pixel in the midst of this vast expanse of the universe. And Carl Sagan wrote concerning this particular this picture image, and he waxes philosophically about the meaning of the world and Earth. And so here we have one of the brightest minds, one of the most amazing technological advances, this picture being sent back to us, him opining on the meaning of such things, and listen to what I believe utter hopelessness. He calls this picture the pale blue dot. In fact, he sums up the entirety of the Earth, all of our longings, all the people we ever knew, every discovery. He says, there it is all of it, on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Now, i got to give the man some credit. What a wonderful description of what this picture was. A moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena, he says. Think of all the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. You know how he's, what he's getting at here is the greatest among us, the, the striving, the, the preening, the pretending, the, the gathering of great kingdoms, and he's just showing how vain it all is. For a momentary, he says, a momentary, to become a momentary master of a fraction of a dot. And then he goes on, and he makes this statement that I think is positively delicious when compared to the wisdom of, of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Solomon. He says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this 
point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, he says, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. What an interesting phrase. There's no hint that help will come for, from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, ultimately, under the sun, given a completely humanistic understanding of the world, if you buy into materialism or if you believe the supernaturalism exists, if you think that there's no creator, in other words, if you're just longing for meaning, meaning here, in this place, then of course this is totally correct. But he also recognizes something. Here's what's so amazing. I read the end of a paragraph like that and I want to talk to the men and I want to say, but do you wish there was? When you say there's no sign of help from outside to rescue us from ourselves, are, are, you, are you admitting that that's the kind of thing that we ought to be longing for and looking for? Because it sure seems like humans have an obsession with this sort of thing. I would also want to say, well, where do you get the idea that something needs to be saved? And how do you have a self-consciousness about ourselves? Simply, I think it was C.S. Lewis who says that a humanistic understanding of the world turns out to be too simple. If we, were, if we were all that was in the world, or if human beings were ultimately uh, the, the inventors of their own meaning, then we should have never figured that out. How did we become self-aware? How, how did we ever come to the point where we knew that there was something to be known? Or that there was something to be strived for? We... In other words, uh, there's a kind of there's a kind of matrix that can be described by the way Sagan's. It's just all it's just the movement of molecules. It's just math. It's just science. It's just nothing. It's all mechanical. It's all robotic. It's just a matrix. But of course, Lewis points out that humans seem to be these weird creatures who, like you know, Truman in the Truman Show, start to suspect. They're wondering, well, what in the world? And even. Here, Sagan, in the midst of his wonderful prose, uh, amazing human accomplishment, this picture being sent back. Why would he end it by saying there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves? What an interesting instinct from him. He knows it needs to be, to be squashed, at least in his view. Of course, Solomon has no such problem. He defines and realizes, of course, the vanity of emperors trying to master a little portion of this little pixel. I think he realizes and recognizes the bigness of the world and a longing for supernatural hope and life. However, he does long for help to come from outside of ourselves, which is why he sums up the matter, the end of the matter. All has been heard, he says, fear God. Ultimately, though he does not, the, the, the savior of the world, though Jesus is not yet introduced, that chapter of the story is not yet introduced, this, this little self-contained book of the Bible has very little mention of the hope of the Messiah. But, because eternity has been placed in his heart, Solomon reaches out and he says, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every, every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The ultimate answer to human life is God. That is the, that's the answer that Ecclesiastes is pressing us to get toward. Uh, some of my favorite commentaries that I've read through as I've studied this particular book, I went to the conclusions and I wanted to gather a couple of their thoughts to maybe help us think through these things. Peter Kreef, who I already mentioned, is perhaps my favorite of all of those who wrote on this particular book in a book called Three Philosophies of Life, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs is the ones that he teaches through. He has this to say, Ecclesiastes is a bright book of life. <laughs> what, a, what a phrase. Ecclesiastes is a bright book of life. It is bright precisely in its dazzling darkness. 
It is a book of life precisely because it honestly and nakedly confronts the fact of death. It is a great, great book because it explores deeply and uncompromisingly a great, great question. What are our lives here under the sun for? What are our lives for? And that is the greatest question in the world. I've said this over and over again. Ecclesiastes is unique in the Bible because it mainly exists to ask a question, one that ultimately needs to be answered in order to come to grips with our need for a Savior. So that's Kreeft in Three Philosophies of Life. It is a great, great book because it asks a great, great question. The greatest of all questions, what are our lives for? On the summary statement that we just read in these last couple of verses, a few other people uh, comment, I think, in helpful helpful ways. There is a writer named James E. Smith who writes on wisdom literature and the Psalms in a commentary series. Um, and he says a couple of things about this. He says that ultimately what life boils down to is discovering the duty of piety and submission of will to our Creator. That we must discover this. He says at the end here, his translation of the end of Ecclesiastes 12 is when he says, this is the end of every man, or this is the whole duty of man, he says it could literally translate, this is every man. This is every man. And Smith says, this is what it means to be a human, to be a man. This is the object, the chief good, which with we are to seek. It is the cor only course of life which will give us contentment and happiness. To know God, to fear him, to keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. One further comment on this particular thing from Michael Eaton, who writes in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series. He comments first about the purposelessness of life, and it's funny because he mentions Blaise Pascal, who I've quoted in previous videos, and his pursuit of space and the universe and the world beyond that actually makes him comment on life, much like Sagan did, of course, with very different results. But Pascal once said, he is terror-stricken when thinking about the silence of infinite space. Terror-stricken. This is Eaton summarizing. He says, nature will not answer your questions. It will not tell you the answers to life's enigmas. And many of you will realize you cannot cope without knowing where life is going. History will baffle every attempt to answer you're seeking, you're longing for meaning. He says that you do not like to think about your death, yet it is the very most certain fact of your existence. And then going on, he says in a summary, he says, what would it be like, what would it be like, asks the preacher, asks Solomon in Ecclesiastes, if things were utterly different from what you thought? What if this world is not the ultimate one? What if God exists and he's a rewarder of those who seek him? In other words, what if the end of the matter is this, that we should fear God and keep his commandments? In other words, what if the end of the matter down here is that we look up there? At the end of all these questionings, Eaton says this, we leave the preacher here, we must, there's no more in Ecclesiastes, Solomon didn't write anymore. We leave him here, but his message is not complete. He lived before the full light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw from far away, but was still left with some questions. How can God accept us, or how can we bridge this chasm, this gap, between a world of no meaning to ultimate meaning? What is the ultimate explanation for this, what uh, Eden calls a hideous mess of a world? 
What grounds can anyone feel confident that there would be some way that this will be put right in the future? Isn't there a missing link in all of this? And again, I think that's the point of the book, right? This is the question that's being pressed forward. And Eaton then, of course, powerfully says, the missing link in all of Ecclesiastes is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is in the Christ, the Savior, the sin-bearer, that God says to us, God is reconciled to you, and you are reconciled to God. He has set a day which we, when he will judge the world with justice by the one man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead, the very inescapable fact of death. By overcoming that fact, he's given proof. And then he summarizes by mentioning that of the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, some sneer. Another said, we want to hear you again, but a few believed. And what Ecclesiastes is pressing us is to believe that ultimately there will be purpose, that we will be delivered into meaning. And so, the best summary that can be said, I believe that the, the lesson that we're to learn, the thing we're to see in the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, is really, I would say it's twofold, but really comes under a big banner of knowing God. And it's only in knowing God that we'll be able to fully know ourselves and our purpose in the world. And this phrasing at the end of chapter 12, the end of the matter is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. And then he goes on, though, in verse 14 to say, for God will bring every deed into judgment. I think we could summarize it by saying this. The gift of the Spirit of God, the gift of knowing the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, is to know God enough to long for him, to fear him, to walk in his commandments, to want to be like him. So know him enough to long for him, but then also, as the second key, to know him enough to stop pretend, pretending to be him. And there's a, a joy in giving to, in letting, letting the world exist in a tension that you can't solve. You open your hands and you say, ultimately, I don't know how to solve this world because I am not God. It's not my job. So, there's the twofold command here. Fear God, keep his commandments, knowing this, that he will ultimately judge the world. You are off the jury. You are not behind the gavel. You don't have to have answers for every injustice. You don't have to know. Now, we do know a lot, and we're called to work with God as he gives us grace. But ultimately, the real weight of the world, bringing about and tying together every loose end, and ultimately, the, the meaning of, of human life and souls and those kind of things, God will do right he will judge the world. He'll bring things about in a beautiful conclusion. Here and now, because we're finite, uh, because we're not designed to know it, because we never were intended to be God, and because of the fallenness of sin, we're going to feel a constant tension of things being undone, of ultimate judgment not really, really ever being seen. But Solomon says there can be wisdom in that. Let the tension, let the longing for justice let it have you fear God and keep his commandments. And if we do that, we will have gained wisdom and I think we'll understand the book. Thanks so much for following along with this series. Uh, I hope you can go all the way back to the intro and then go through each of the weeks as we attempted to consider the main questions of the book. It's been a joy for me and hopefully it's been helpful to you. God bless.